Today on Talking Sports with Tony V, we're going to interview the man, the myth, the legend himself, Tony V. Tony, how you doing today? Great, Rohit. Good to hear you and see you and uh, happy to have uh, all the listeners out there coast to coast and around the world. This is exciting. I hope I hear from more people from Italy, especially where my family is from. And, and where exactly is that in Italy? Well, it depends on who you're talking about, either my grandma or my grandpa on either side. We, we touch all, uh, all sections of Italy, one uh, up near Rome and uh, my grandma's family on my um, father's side came from Bari, B-A-R-E, Bari. And uh, they're all over the place. But uh, many relatives uh, en- ended up at uh, Ellis Island in New York and landed and stayed in the Northeast. And a few went to Florida. It's the old joke by Jerry Seinfeld that when you turn 65, you, you actually have to move to Florida. It's a law <laughs> if you're living in New York. <laughs> and one random Ventrella found his way to Seattle. That's right. That's right. It's quite by accident, but I'm so glad I came here in 1981. And son of a gun, I'm still here. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tony, you know, as we were talking about this podcast and coming up with different topics, one of the things that I really want to know about as a fan of Seattle sports myself is not just about the, the big teams that we have, but specifically around you and your experiences with those teams. I'm a, I'm a diehard M's fan, uh, but you know, the Hawks were always there. Uh, the Sonics were there. So if you don't mind, I'd like to bring that up and, and just kind of would love to hear maybe some of the stories that you have of, of your interactions with all three teams. You sure. know, what were the locker rooms like, who was easiest to work with and, Let's get a little behind-the-scenes glimpse of the life of Tony Ventrella. Absolutely. No, I think it's... Well, I'll tell you one thing right now before we do any kind of Q&A, and that is my first trip to Seattle was um, in 81, early 81. I was offered a job out here. I was living in Indiana, working in television there. I was offered a job. They flew me out, and the Mariners were playing the Yankees at the Kingdom early in the season. Of course, I grew up a Yankee fan. I didn't tell anybody that, but I grew up a Yankee fan. And they said, well, do you want to go to the Kingdom?" And at the time, I knew about the Kingdom, and I thought, what a fascinating place. I'd love to see a game at the Kingdom." So we went down in the taxi with the, the uh, sports director. They were looking for a weekend sports guy. This guy was the weeknight uh, man at KOMO. So we went down, and they, they let me, they dropped me off the game, and I watched from the press box, and I'm going, this place is cool. First time I ever saw the kingdom, even though there must have been maybe 5,000 people there. So that was a great first memory of, uh, of Seattle. Then, of course, I went back to where I was, and six months later I got hired, and, and the rest is history. But the first event I ever saw was in the kingdom, Yankees Mariners. I can't tell you. I think Renee Latchman might have been the manager back then. I can't even think. But guys like Gaylord Perry were still playing. Yeah. Wow. And the impact that you've made on Seattle sports, specifically with the Seahawks, is you know probably what you're most known for when it comes to connecting with the team. How did how did that happen? Well, Your interactions with well, I appreciate the question, Roy, because it changed so much over the years. We have to remember when I first came here in '82. First of all, the Seahawks were not that good in '82, '83. They actually had a pretty good team, but when they came here in '82. Um, 
their original coach, Jack Patera, was still in place. They were coached, they were uh, training over in Spokane, in Cheney, rather, uh, with uh, 95-degree heat in the summertime. Uh, so I saw some of that. We covered the team at the Dome. They weren't that great. Second year, 83, they did go to Miami and beat the Dolphins in a playoff game. And it was their best team to date at that point. Dave Craig at quarterback. Uh, guys like that were playing in those days. Uh, Norm Johnson was a kicker for them. I'd have to go back and remember some of the other players that were uh, on that team. But it was a great memory of going down to Miami and they beat the Dolphins and uh, they beat Dan Marino. It was ridiculous. The odds were way against them. That was a super memory flying back from that one and seeing all the uh, crowds at the airport greeting the uh, Seahawks. Then they went the following week and got hammered by the Oakland Raiders in the playoffs. But it was a great memory. Uh, but I wasn't that close to the players then. And as the years went on, uh, because I was a member of the media, I wasn't a Seahawk employee until many years later. So I covered the Seahawks every year. And then long about 05, was working at Q13, doing uh, some news in the morning, a little help with weekend sports. And I was their Seahawk reporter. So I flew to some of the games. After leaving Q13, got a call from Dave Pearson, who was the PR director at Seahawks and said, Hey, look, we just started the website. We need someone to do on camera interviews on our website, someone with experience who can make the players feel comfortable and maybe even help some of the guys with some of their speaking skills because they get invited out to do public speaking. So I said, Hey, yeah, I'll do that. So next thing you know, I'm working for the Seahawks for the next 11 years. And that's when I got to know the players. That's when I became close with Bobby Ingram and, and Russell Okung and I could go down the long, long list. And I had, I thought, a great relationship with Richard Sherman. And even Marshawn, who was very tough to get to as a um, player because he didn't want to talk to anybody. And I went to Marshawn one day in the locker room and I said, hey, I want you to know that if you ever don't want to talk to me, just put your hand up when I'm walking over towards you. <laughs> and he put his hands on my shoulder. He says, I'm not going to do that. No, he said, look, most of the time I don't like talking to the media, but you're fine. You ask, I think, normal questions, and you're not going to ask personal stuff, and don't worry about it, he said to me. So we became, uh, I thought, fairly good friends, and he helped me uh, with some of my political aspirations. I won't go into that one now, but he introduced me to a couple people later on when I wanted to run for office. So uh, I became uh, one of the, in fact, I was the first reporter in Seattle to interview Russell Wilson. Dave Wyman and I did it on a, uh, a webcast on uh, Seahawks.com. Russell was a raw rookie. And just enthusiastic as he still is today, and just a great guy. And to this day, when I see him, he comes over and gives me a hug. He's just a great guy. And I haven't been with the team for four years, so it's been quite a while. Richard Sherman was another one. Close to him, Doug Baldwin. Um, guys like that, and just wonderful characters. And Doug does so much for the community, which is how I met most of those guys. The guys I'm close with were ones that went with me to community events. Bobby Ingram one time at a, uh, an event over in Yakima for, uh, it was a women's group, YWCA, that had, was doing wonderful things for women in need. And Bobby, not Bobby Ingram, um, Doug Baldwin, they asked me uh, if I could get Doug to come. And I said, Doug, they, they're going to pay. They're willing to pay you $5,000. So he didn't say anything. He said, I'll go, let's go. We drove out there together. Did an hour and a half in front of this wonderful luncheon. At the end of the luncheon, this was right after they lost that Super Bowl, the heartbreaking one to New England and Arizona. Yeah. They said to him, by the way, before you go, 
why'd you lose that game? He just laughed at me. He said, I can't believe you asked me that question. But at any rate, he said, hey, I want uh, this group to know that I was happy to be here. It was my privilege to be in front of you today. And then we left. And um, two days later, they called me and said, where did we send the check to Bobby? And I said, there's no check. He told me that he, he wants you to keep the money and keep putting it toward the program for women that you, and that's the kind of guy that he was. Russell Okung, same thing. Uh, these guys did so much. And so those are my great memories. It's got almost nothing to do with football. <laughs> it's the personal stuff. Yeah, and I imagine that's really, when you look back at your career, those are the relationships that you're going to think about. Because even for myself, who's, who's not involved in sports, when I think about former places where I've worked, I don't think about the work itself. I think about my coworkers and the friendships that I made. Yeah. And the same has got to be true for you. When when you hear the Sonics, you can probably name, okay, yeah, I was close to this person, this person, this person. And hear the stories behind that and, and what those relationships have, have meant to you over the years. Well, it's, it's so true. And you see a different side of the players, too, that uh, fans don't often see. Uh, Pete Carroll, example, first time I ever met him was when he was hired in 2010. Obviously, we're sitting in the locker room doing a web interview with him on one camera, just he and I. And I, I did a, what I thought was a funny thing. He actually got a kick out of it, too. I had heard that, th that there was a book written about him, and there was. It was before his book came out. There was a book written about him. So I had my own book, which I had just written called Smile in the Mirror, and I signed it to Coach Carroll from Tony Van. He didn't know who I was. And I said, Coach, before you tell me about the book that's been written about you, I want to give you this. So he just laughed. He said, well, first of all, there is no book written about me. That, that never happened. But I'm writing a book now. But thank you for your book. That was the first thing we talked about on TV. And I must give him credit. We had many meetings inside his office with nobody else there when he invited me in and said, hey, look, come on in. Let's talk for five minutes. We talk, and he would say, look, I want you to come to my team meetings. No media members come to those. I want you to see how we operate, how we protect each other, how we're honest with each other. Because if you're, th this is when I was thinking of going into politics. He, and he wouldn't tell me, I mean, I happen to know where he leans politically. I'm not going to talk about it here, nor will he talk about it publicly. But he said to me, look, I want you to go out there and do what you want to do. And someday when I retire from coaching, I'll think about doing it too. Uh, but he uh, took me in. He said, look, I want you to come to our meetings to show you how we deal with 120 players and coaches with different personalities from different backgrounds. And I, it was a great lesson for my nine full-time years with the Seahawks. I will never forget Coach for letting me do that. It was really cool. So, yeah, those are the memories that I have, the experiences I have, and Heck, the day after, the day we lost that game, I'm talking about in Arizona, when the, when the interception by Malcolm Butler, and everyone goes, oh my God, what just happened? I had the choice of going to the winner's locker room or the loser's locker room. You either turn right or left at the stadium. And I'm going, oh my, I was halfway to the winner's locker room. And I turn around, I watch the end, last play on a little monitor up by the ceiling. I'm going, oh my God, what just happened here? I got to go talk to Coach Carroll after he lost in the most devastating way ever. So I walk into the, and leave it to the NFL, the winner's locker room's got confetti and balloons and everything. The loser's area is a dank visitor's locker room somewhere with a bunch of cameras set up. I go in and I'm standing by the podium with my camera microphone and coach comes in behind me, puts his arm on my shoulder and says, that was a tough one. And he goes and does the interview. 
And that's the only thing he said and didn't make excuses. And then the next morning, I know a lot of people don't realize, but the team doesn't fly home the same night from the Super Bowl. They stay overnight. Uh, next morning, we got this huge breakfast buffet. And of course, the winning team, they're probably out celebrating the losing team. Nobody's at the breakfast buffet. Nobody's got the heart except me. I'm at the buffet at 8 o'clock because it's all this great food. And I turn around, Russell Wilson's next to me, putting some fruit salad onto a plate. Two nights before we had been, before the Super Bowl, Super Bowl Eve, we had been to a Bible uh, study. I always go to that. I used to go to that with him and a bunch of players. The night before, they always bring a pastor in, and they'd say things about the game, and they wouldn't talk about We don't pray to win or any of that stuff. Just talk about staying healthy, don't get hurt. And so I didn't know what to what I'm thinking, what am I going to say to Russell Wilson? He just lost the most heartbreaking game of his life, even though he was just a kid at that point. Again, he puts his arm on my shoulder, and he goes, that was a tough one, wasn't it? Same thing Coach C said to me the night before. So I said, hey, look, Russ, I wanted to tell you that I've enjoyed this season, and I appreciate all the pastors that you brought into the Bible study on the road. I didn't know what else to say to him. So he said it was my pleasure. So I gained even more respect for Russell that day than ever before. But those, those were the memories that, that are priceless that I'm so grateful to have had with these guys, not just because they're football players, but they're great individuals. And so many others as well. I mean, you can go all the way down the line from, I mentioned Steve Largent many times and Jim Zorn and Chuck Knox, whom I saw, by the way, on the bus. Last time I saw him, he was getting older at that point, a little bit frail on the bus between the hotel and the game. Super Bowl practice the day before the game. I saw Chuck Knox for the last time. And we talked about great days of his career and all that. Shook his hand, of course, passed away a couple of years later. But those were, again, just uh, wonderful opportunities that I never would have gotten had it not been for being lucky enough to have a career in broadcasting. So it's got nothing to do with been getting recognized in a grocery store <laughs> or making decent money. It has all to do with the wonderful people I've met. And believe me, I met a lot of people that are not in professional athletes either that uh, all the way all the way to the the figure skaters that I covered at the world championships and the skiers at the Olympics and the amateur baseball players at the summer games in 88 and all those kind of people the equestrian kids who ride horses and try to win medals and you know just a lot of great stuff I mean there's a if I try to list them it would take days to list all these opportunities now I won't ask you any specific names but I'm sure there were some people who were quite the opposite. <laughs> you would see them walking down the hallway and all of a sudden you uh, had to run to a meeting that you forgot about. So how did, how did you as a professional handle those types of things? Yeah, actually, you know, there, there never, there, there may have been people that I have had upset along the way, but I would never turn and walk the other way when I saw them in the hallway today. That's the difference. I would never do that. One guy that was to give me the hardest time anybody ever gave me was Indiana basketball coach Bobby Knight. In 1977, he came to a high school in Fort Wayne, Indiana to do a coach's clinic. I was told by the coach of Bishop Lewis High School in Fort Wayne that, hey, Coach Knight says he'll interview you. Just go in the locker room before he's getting dressed. He'll be out in a minute. Well, I didn't realize that I was set up by that coach because Coach Knight was pretty ornery. So I go in the locker room. Here's Coach Knight. Not only is he not, he's out of street clothes getting into his Indiana, Indiana coach red and white gear because their colors are red and white. 
but he's, he's basically half naked. I walk in on him naked with a camera. He turns around and he goes, what the H do you want? Who the H are you? And I said, well, coach so-and-so said that I could do an interview and it, well, go interview him. I'm not going to talk to you. So instead of backing down, I just said, well, I'll tell you what, just a couple of questions. And I stood there and he finally turned around and sat down and he goes, okay, all right, let's wow. get this over with. Yeah. So we did the interview. And at the end, of course, he had to get an insult in. He looks at the camera guy and he goes, boy, those were tough questions, weren't they? And he walks out. But I still had an interview with Bobby Knight. And if I ever saw him today, I would remind him of that and I'd shake his hand. I think he's still alive. I don't know. I believe he is. But he was one of the tough ones. Another one was Billie Jean King, the great tennis star who played Bobby Riggs back in the 70s. I'm covering a women's softball game in Connecticut. And she's there as a, as a supporter of women's fast pitch softball. And I had a show on the radio, one of the first ever in, in the country called Women in Sports in 1971. It was all about women. I walk over to Billie Jean and I go, my name's Tony. I do a show called Women in Sports. I'm really interested in women's sports. She looked at me and she goes, yeah, so what? <laughs> so I thought, whoa, this is going to be tough. But again, we did the interview, we shook hands, and I'm happy I met her. So not everybody was a delight but uh but i always turned it into a positive at the end thinking okay maybe they had a bad day uh, <laughs> i never took it personally now a, a team that many of us still hold in our hearts who uh are no longer with us what was your life like with the seattle supersonics well, I think uh, it was good. It was, it was a, and I've told the story before, in fact, on this particular podcast of my first uh, time walking onto the court, new in town, trying to interview Fred Brown in the middle of practice, and Lenny Wilkins stared me down and said, ah, we don't do that until after, I thought that was a funny uh, moment, but those guys were cool. Uh, you know, Freddie Brown was great. Gary Payton, I'll never forget when Gary was uh, drafted out of Oregon State. I had a show at King Five. And we had him on, for some reason, we had him in town uh, before he was drafted. I don't know how that worked, but I remember having him live on the set on King TV going, hey, Gary, uh, you're up here in Seattle, and boy, we're hoping that they pick you. And I'm thinking, or maybe either that or they drafted him but didn't sign him yet. That must have been it. So we're talking about his college career and what do you think of Seattle and just really cool. And I said, by the way, before we go, Gary, I just want to tell the Sonics who are watching us now, please sign this guy. We need him. And I thought to myself, you know, what a little punk they must think I am. But that was a great, funny moment. Of course, they did sign him, and the rest is history. Became one of the all-time greats, the glove. And uh, I was able to follow them to the 96 NBA championships, which they lost in six games in Chicago. And it was one of, uh, it was just a wonderful moment. Uh well, Sean Kemp was another one. Sean Kemp was just a gentleman. He's just a cool. I'd love to go talk to Sean because he's got that cannabis shop. Yeah. We got to go talk to him. And not that I'm a cannabis guy, but uh, I just want to. for some free samples. Yeah, I'm just going to say, you know, my foot hurts. Can I rub some of that <laughs> stuff on there? Uh, but yeah, another good guy. And Lenny Wilkins, a prince. All these great teams that played in Seattle. And someday, I know it's going to happen, thanks to Todd Lewicki and his brother and the folks from the Kraken and building that Climate Pledge. Uh, we're going to get the NBA back. I know it's going to happen, and people are going to be thrilled, and they'll probably lose for a couple of years, but you need to have patience just to get them back. And hopefully some of these guys will still be with us uh, that were at the first Kraken game that were honored uh, there for 
doing so much in that former building when it was Key Arena. So uh, we deserve a team, and uh, Seattle should get one. The whole region needs a team again. So let's bring yeah. them back. Mm. And baseball has been your number one since growing up. Yeah. Yep. And so if, if I remember correctly, the, the M's were the first team that you really were regularly with. Yeah, as a, as a television broadcaster, it's the first team I covered day to day. And so early on, you know, guys like Renee Latchman and, and Gordon Thomas, or Gorman, Gorman Thomas, the original Gorman Thomas, who came over from the, um, let me think, am I getting this right? Yeah, I, can't, I forgot what team he came over. He was tough to get along with, but he, we did interviews with them. Guys like uh, Spike Owen and, uh, you know, people that played on teams that weren't that good. And then, of course, Griffey Jr. came up in 89. Griffey Sr. joined the team a year later. And the rest is history, all those great teams under Lou Pinella. And the funny thing is when Lou came here, uh, I had met him before. Lou was, uh, came here as a manager, and I was emceeing a Kiwanis luncheon in Everett. And Lou Pinella was the key the, uh, speaker prior to the first season, his first season here. Well, little did he know that I had met him when he was an outfielder for the Yankees a few years earlier. So I had a picture of myself with a young Lou Pinella, and I had it, I had it to put on the screen behind us. And he walks to the podium, and I said, okay, new Mariner manager, Lou Pinella. Lou, turn around. He turns around, and he sees this picture of he and I. It was 12 years earlier. We're both much younger. And he goes, oh, my God, I can't believe that. Yeah, it was for the Yankees. I said, you don't remember me, do you? He goes, no, I don't, but I remember being with the Yankees. So, <laughs> but he was good. He was, uh, I got along great with Lou because I was straight with him. And, uh, and I wasn't intimidated by him either. A lot of people, younger reporters were intimidated by Lou. But he's, he was a good guy and did great things for this baseball. Coach. Saved the Mariners, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, absolutely. Between him and Griffey and all the wonderful folks that actually saved them financially. Uh, yeah, he's the reason they're still here today. One of the big reasons. Not to mention all the investors that put the money into it. <laughs> now, looking at the top three, we've got the M's, the Hawks, and the Sonics. Which players on each of those teams did you have the closest personal relationship with? Well, Seahawks, I, it was no doubt that Doug Baldwin, Bobby Ingram, and Russell Okun were the three for, uh, for the Seahawks. There were others I got along great with, including Largen and Zorn and all the classic names from the 70s and even names from the 80s. Uh, Nate Burleson, another one, local kid, uh, who's doing great things on television right now. Um, so many, uh, I mean, if I saw faces, I can recall uh, some, some of the other guys. But those were a few. With the Mariners, you know, Griffey was always pretty cool to me. It was because of my son, Pete. I love uh, this story. Because Junior, <laughs> uh, Pete was 15, 16 years old. We're at the Kingdome, and Griffey was refusing to talk to the media. And Pete had kind of a big mouth, like I did when I was younger. So my son says to him, hey, come on, Junior, why won't you talk to these guys? So... Griffey says, well, I'll talk to you, but I won't talk to them. So Pete goes, can I use the camera, Dad? So I said, sure, he won't talk to us. So Pete did this interview with Griffey, I think it was 1993, sitting on a golf cart in front of the dugout at the Kingdom. And uh, it was a great interview. We ran it. I can't find it anymore in the archives of Cairo Television. I don't know where it is. Pete keeps asking me, Dad, can you find that? I want to show my kids. But yeah, Griffey was great. And then he would pull us up next to us on I-5 and blow the horn, beep, beep. I'd look over, oh, there's Griffey. 
he'd roll down the window and go, for God's sakes, get your kid a nice car, will you? Stuff like that. So he was cool. To this day, I, I, I haven't seen him since, uh, I'm trying to think, Seahawks game a few years ago when he was the flag raiser and gave me a hug, shook hands. It's great to see him again. And of course, now he's involved with the team more. Mm-hmm. So that's going to help as a minor minority owner. Um, and then Niehaus, Dave Niehaus was great with me because Dave, when Dave went into the Hall of Fame, uh, I asked him if I could do a little. I wasn't on television anymore, but I was doing these Comcast specials back then, and it was on cable, and not that many people were watching. But I said to him, hey, do you mind if I do an interview with you about your Hall of Fame induction? Not only did he let me do the interview, but the Mariners let me use the video of him getting out of the limo at the hall, part of his speech. And I interviewed him. It was last time I, one of the last times I saw him before he passed away. And uh, uh, he, the, in his eyes were glistening over as he talked about getting into the Hall of Fame. It was such a wonderful time for him. He, oh, he deserved to be in the Hall, there's no question. And um, I have seen, I've been back to the Hall since then and have seen the little display with Dave and the others. So it's one of the great visits you got to make if you've never done it. Cooperstown, Cooperstown yeah. New York. Um, so that was a great moment. And yeah, I'm trying to think too of uh, others that I've met. That, well, obviously Junior's in the Hall of Fame as well. Randy Johnson. I mean, so many of these guys. Edgar. Edgar, yes. He so much deserved to go. He was another terrific guy. Edgar, by the way, was one of the reasons we were able to raise so much money for the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation in 1995, I used to do their uh, their uh, fundraiser every year since my sister, two of my sisters, passed away uh, due to cystic fibrosis many, many years ago. So one night, we're getting ready to do the event. Um, this was uh, game two, game four of that five-game series. The next day was when he hit the double. So prior to game four, I had to, I had to be at the Sheridan at five o'clock that night, six o'clock to emcee this event. I couldn't go to the game, but I went down to batting practice. And I said, Edgar, you got anything I can, I can auction off with your name on it? So he pulls a bat out of the rack. He signs it. He says, go see what happens here. So I put the bat up, and there it is. It's on display. The people start showing up for the auction, and we get there. And, of course, there's a television on the back of the room. And we don't have the bidding yet. And Edgar hits a home run. The night before he hit the double, he hit a home run that helped win that game. So all of a sudden, the bidding pops up. Suddenly, the bat goes for like $5,000 at this event. And that's a lot of money in 95 because he hit that home run of going, Edgar, all right, <laughs> raised 5K for cystic fibrosis. And, of course, the Mariners every year do that golf tournament, and they raise money for CF. So that's always been close to my heart, too. So, uh, yeah, just a lot of trying to think of, uh, you know, I wasn't as close to him as I was to, Probably even to Junior, as far as that goes. Jay mm-hmm. Buner was always cool to me. We were never that, we never buddy buddy, but he was a good guy, and I got along great with him. Jamie Moyer, I uh, had a great uh, time with him. Uh, I took him on a tour of Seattle the first time he came here. We went down to Pike Place Market, and we did it. We followed him around, interviewed him about, you know, the fish market and all that stuff. And then he went on to have a tremendous career, including a World Series ring with the Phillies. So. Another wonderful guy who did a ton, he and his wife, for local charities. So that's all I remember. You know what? Honestly, honestly, I don't remember the statistics as much as I remember what the players did for the local community. And then what about the Sonics? Any key relationships that stand out to you? You know, not as much because they left 
uh, at a time when I was out of TV. Uh, I had left TV. I was doing some other things, a lot of other freelance stuff. But I didn't cover them in the last few years before they left, so I didn't have those relationships. I did. I mean, you know, guys like Jack Sigma, and I could certainly say hello and reminisce with guys like that. But we, it wasn't, we didn't have real close relationships because I didn't cover them as much either because uh, they played so many games. I was on the air during most of their games. So most of my interaction would be I'd send a reporter, he'd do the interviews, and we'd put that into a sportscast, and then I would go home. At the, occasionally, I'd go to the uh, 13 Coins and see uh, Sean Kemp at 1 o'clock in the morning after my shift and his game, if you haven't breakfast at the 13 Coins. But uh, I'd say the relationships were all good. None of them were as close as they were with some of the Seahawks guys that I mentioned. Yeah. So, uh, but on the other hand, amateurs, amateur athletes, one of them that comes to mind, a lot of people will remember Rosalind Sumners, who won the world championship and uh, nearly won the Olympic gold against Katarina Witt. I was very close to her and her family and went to Helsinki with her when she won the Worlds and, and did a half-hour special on her, one of the most, I'm proud of probably that as much as any video I've ever put together um, about that trip. I was able to uh, cover an entirely new sport. I knew nothing about figure skating, but um, and got close to a lot of those people. And it's funny because you run into people today and they'll see you whether it's a, a guy or a woman in whatever sport it was, and they go, oh, my God, oh, you remember when we did this, or you... Well, I'm going to tell you the airline story now real quick. I'll get, I promise it won't take long. <laughs> so we're traveling to the Winter Olympics in Nagano, Japan in 1998 with seven other people from uh, Cairo TV. We go out there, we get to Tokyo, go to Nagano, cover the games for 22 days. We're coming home, and we're at the airport, Narita Airport in Tokyo. And we had gotten an upgrade going out there because some of the flight attendants and the gate people, this is long before when they could still give you a first-class upgrade and the planes weren't full back then. And so they put us all in business class going to Tokyo. So we get to Japan, we get back to the airport and we're coming home and one of my coworkers goes, hey, you think you can get us upgraded? And I'm going, no, 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 forget it. We're sitting in coach. I don't know anybody here. They're very nice people here at Narita, but I don't know anyone. So we get to check into the plane and we're getting on board. And one of the flight attendants says to me, Tony, uh, I want to thank you so much for covering my daughter's championship volleyball team. The kids love the video you did, the story. And she said, are you, who are you traveling with today? Can I upgrade you? And I said, no, 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 please. I got seven other people with me. I don't want to be upgraded because they're going to be in coach and we're fine with coach. No, I think we might have enough. Let me see how many seats. Have. So she finds six seats in business and one in first class. Yeah. And she's, well, how about if I put you in first class and they can be in bed? I said, no, I can't be, I can't be in a different class. Put me in coach in them in first in them in business. She goes, no, no, no. Oh, wait a minute. I just found a seventh seat. She puts us all in business class and they're all high-fiving me. How did you do that? I said, I didn't do it. I mean, we did a story on our daughter, and these seats would have been empty. We didn't get anything for nothing, believe me. But this was back in 98. And so that was my one. So apparently this woman uh, really, really uh, liked the fact that I covered her daughter. So there were those connections where there wasn't a real friendship involved. But, you know, you make connections. And it was fun to do that all those years. 
Well, Tony, thank you so much for for sharing a little bit about uh, your relationship with the with the top three, and then even more so, you know the the impact that you made on other people. I think looking back, that's one of the things that really makes you stand out more than others is you really humanize sports. It's not just the the box score at the end for you. It's the stories, the relationships, the trust and the sincerity that really have set you apart. And I've heard nothing but fantastic things from everyone who's ever worked with you. And I think that's a true testament to your philosophy. Well, thank you very much, sir, for saying that. I appreciate that. And one quick note, there are a lot of people today doing the same thing out there, and we hope that they get as much recognition when their careers come to a close as well. Thank you. What a man.